Lord, I would agree with that and do desire that uh, you use your word primarily, mightily, and that you uh, would be seen through all of the circumstances. And Lord, we pray for Sharon as well. Continue to pray for her, desire that you would empower her to continue to minister and give her the energy and the health that she needs to do the work you call her to do, and that she, as she desires to finish well her life and her career down there, that you make every day impactful and her life impactful every day. So we just commit her and desire that today, that as we look into your word, that you would give us a similar attitude as what she has facing the days that we live in, the place that we are placed, and that your will be done, and that we may be able to be lights in a dark world. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Get into the book of Romans. Today what I want to stress are two major principles. One of them we've been somewhat developing already. I just haven't stated it as a principle. And we'll get further into the text that will re-emphasize the same idea. And as we've been going through chapters 6, 7, and 8, we've been kind of pulling out different principles for living the Christian life. And we'll look at two from chapter 7, which the emphasis is the corruption of the flesh. And I'm going to look closely at that word. We've seen it already in the book of Romans, but we haven't given too much attention to it. But I think it's appropriate in chapter 7. Paul writing to believers. Anyone remember? Anyone been there before? Right next to the Colosseum, Arch of Constantine. Now that would have been built later. So that would not have been there in the first century. I believe, I can't remember what the date on that is. but It's not raining. Actually, clouded up after I took that photograph. And you remember the temple of Faustina and Antoninus? Remember that? It was raining when we were there. In fact, I think clouds are starting to break up. But you might notice in the back is a church that they built basically on the side of the temple. And the ground level, when the church was there, was up in that location. But archaeologically, they dug out everything underneath and got to the bottom of these columns. But that would have been a first century temple, and that's all that remains of it today. So the bottom portion is part of the top of that top of the church? Yeah, this portion here and the back portion is is a later, I don't know what the date of that church is. But there were believers after Paul, and this would have been much later after Paul, Paul would have seen the temple. He would not have seen that church there. That's a later addition. And the believers, obviously, in Rome lived in that area. So they were familiar with the Roman Forum. Again, most prominent structure is the Colosseum. And that little box-like structure there, that's the Arch of Constantine. The other arch, that's the Arch of Titus. been pointing that out as we've been looking at that, and snuck away to take that photograph. Right? You're not going to believe anything else I say today, right? (laughs) Well, we're looking at this whole area of the Christian life. Paul uses the word sanctification, so we get that word, that theological word from uh, Paul, and it's used elsewhere, so we've defined it. And the bottom line, it deals with the whole area of God setting us apart after salvation to be able to live differently. And there's a lot of words that we could say that would describe it, but it's essentially the Christian life. In the book of Romans, it would be God building, you might say, righteousness in our lives. Justification, he declares us righteous such that we have a new standing and a new position in Christ. You might even say that's more positional because we're not instantaneously transformed, although in terms of all of eternity and in terms of spirituality, we have a transformation that is invisible. 
But sanctification is working those invisible things that God has done, bringing them to the surface such that others can observe them as well. So we experience sanctification, the gradual process of growing in Christ. We've looked at chapter 6, where the emphasis are principles, even though in chapter 7 we're continuing to draw out principles. But the focus more is dealing with the problems that we face in this Christian growth, this Christian walk. And once we're totally frustrated with trying to live the Christian life, we come to the conclusion, walking in our own flesh, we'll talk about that, in our own strength, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, transitions into chapter 8 where he gives the solution and the power that is available to be able to live the Christian life. So principles, problems, power, primarily selecting those words for alliterating effect. Pardon me? The alliterative? Okay, there's our English. Our English Berean. Some of the principles we've already looked at, I mentioned I'm going to not introduce, but kind of state what we've already looked at even before these, but uh, we've looked at a tenth principle. Church-age believers are not under law, so we explained what that meant. That's crucial in understanding the Christian life, because many Christians go back under the law, and that's not the intent, particularly in the church age. We're not under law, so Paul deals with that, and he has to explain, if we're not under law, it's not a problem with law per se. In other words, the law is good. In fact, verse 14, it's spiritual, and it has a lot of intents that God had designed for it. One of the intents, or one of the purposes, is not to sanctify. That was not the purpose of the law, even for those that were under the law. So the Old Testament saints didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit that we have. So we have considerably more. We're not Mm -hmm. under law. Another principle, law was never intended to and cannot sanctify. Not because the law is defective, not because there's anything wrong with the law. It was never designed for that purpose. So if we try to make the law act in that way, then... It's going to be a frustrating Christian experience. So another principle we drew from that is the law is useful, even in the church age, so we don't rip out the law out of our Bibles or even the Old Testament, because there's a function that still is applicable. We're not under it in terms of a covenant and a code, but it still is inspired and still has value and is still useful for us as believers. We can draw principles from the statements of law in the Old Testament. And then I'll give you a, what is it, 13th principle after we get into a little bit of the passage here. We've already been talking about it, but I'll state it as a principle to to make it a little bit clearer. So we've seen, verses 1 through 12, chapter 7, the law cannot sanctify, mainly because it's not designed to sanctify. It has value, but it, but the value is not in the area of sanctification. The rest of chapter 7, he's going to deal with a second major issue that we face. The sin nature cannot sanctify. And he's going to make some strong statements, and we'll draw some principles from that, 13 through 25. He lays out the case concerning the old nature. Not so clear, because he's still transitioning from the issue of the law, but he will get into that particularly in verse 14, where he talks about this captivity that is still potential and very real in the Christian walk, we can still be captured, if you will, or a word New American Standard uses, bondage to sin, even though we are totally forgiven, even though we are released from it, even though we are baptized into the Holy Spirit, chapter 6, all of the things that he mentions there, it's still possible to go back to that old way of living. 
So he's going to describe that, and it's going to end in a frustrating Christian walk. So 14 through 17, the captivity, the sin nature, and the emphasis of it. This is a little review. Chapter 7, I, particularly the passage we're looking at, 29 times, 24 of them in verses 13 through 25. That by itself tells you trying to live the Christian life in my own strength. I, I, I leads to wretched man, and you might even insert woman, that I am in verse 24. Me and my also is prominent. So first person. Now the word I occurs six times, but in Greek the verb carries the first person. So in the New American Standard, we have the translation I. So a lot of these are part of the verb. And that would include the me and my 19 times in chapter 7. Most of them, again, in 13 through 25, 14 times. Law, we've already seen the emphasis of it, 23 times. Now, he's transitioning away from it, so it only occurs eight times. So the rest of them are in the first 12 verses there. And the Holy Spirit only once. And it's kind of anticipating what he's going to deal with in chapter 8. So the contrast with chapter 8, we have the Holy Spirit or God or Christ or He referring to the Trinity or the Godhead 84 times. See the contrast? Only once in chapter 7, 84. Chapter 8, I, how many times? Two times, but the emphasis in those is not the self-centeredness. I is used because a first person is used, but it's more in terms of Paul's opinion or Paul's attitude in verse 18 of chapter 8 and also in verse 38. And then we have a diminished emphasis on law again, even though it does occur in chapter 8 five times. So that gives you the whole story. And if you transfer it into understanding the Christian walk, There's two ways of doing it. One, I can try and do it in my own strength, or I can do it by an attitude of I'm going to commit to the law and try to obey every aspect of it. That leads to the frustration at the end of chapter 7. Or we're going to see in chapter 8 the focus on the power of the Holy Spirit. Two different ways, and that will add to our understanding even in chapter 7. So, verse 17, we didn't quite complete that paragraph or that portion. So let's pick up where we left off. So now, no longer am I, and remember I've color-coded, so the I there is, along with the rest of it, blue. And my color-coding, I'm using the pink to kind of convey the, the focus on the old aspect or the old nature or the sin nature. And the blue is the new. So you have this conflict going on. We'll see that continuing after verse 17 as well. So now, no longer am I, in other words, the recreated, the the eye of the new nature, the eye that has the potential of living a different way. So now, no longer am I, that aspect of me. Now, this verse almost seems like Paul is saying, well, I'm, I'm disassociating myself. In other words, I'm not take, I'm getting out from under it. He's not relinquishing responsibility, and I'm going to bring that out as well, even though it appears that way. I think what he's doing is he's distinguishing between the I, that is the new nature, and the I, or in this case, the me, of the old nature that still remains. So now no longer am I the one doing it, and I emphasize the Greek there because he has the usage of that word, and in this case, karte gazomai. Uh, he uses three different words. I'll show you the slide in a moment. Three different words in terms of doing or acting or performing. In fact, here's the slide here. So it occurs in verse 13, occurs in verse 15, and then I've got it highlighted because we're in verse 17, so it occurs there. It's going to occur again in the next verse, verse 18, and then it's going to occur again in verse 20. So he's using that over. And that word, I gave you a few usage of it, but basically the idea of doing or producing or accomplishing certain things. Later on, we'll see these other words as well. 
verse 19, for example, prazo, and then the other one, they all occur in verse, which one? Verse 15, I think, that we looked at. And the contrast throughout is performing and uh, the will. So we're gonna, I'm gonna use this slide again, and in this case we have fellow, not in, I guess it's not in verse 17. So we'll come back to that. So, so now, no longer am I, there you see the emphasis with the blue there, the I of the new nature, no longer is that contributing, you might say, where the I is still responsible. In other words, Paul is not relinquishing responsibility, but he's distinguishing between the I that is working and the I doing the sin that he described in uh, verses 14 through 16, but he's making a distinction, but sin which dwells in me. And when he says me, he's still identifying himself. In other words, he's not saying it's not me, it's me. <laughs> yeah. But it's a new me, It's a, or, the, or rather the old me, the, the me that still has the capacity to sin. Do you see the distinction there? No, because I would think the I, but the sin, is the old nature and the me is the new nature. Nope. Why not? Because the old is dwelling within the new. Yeah. The, this is the thing doing the sinning and it's dwelling in the new. It's a sin that dwells in the new. The old. But it dwells in the new because I knew. Then that I should be white. Yeah, I should be. So pinky, I should be associated with the So now. If the me is the old. Well, the I is not doing it. Right. Which is which? The I is not sinning. Right. But it's the sin that dwells in that nature that is doing it. Well, then the sin which dwells in me should all be white. Me is old nature. And shouldn't that all be white because that's all part of the old nature? Instead of being part of the nature associated with the blue eye? No, it's because what dwells in the old nature is this sin. That's where the sin sin nature emanates. It's from... It dwells in the old nature. That means the I is blue, so that's the old nature, not the No, me, no, the other way around. <laughs> no, the I is not doing the sin. But you just said the sin is the old nature. Yeah. So that should be associated with the white colored meat, should it not? Not in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it says no longer am I. So previously I would have been Yes. You're right. And so there's, there is a, a white eye somewhere, but it's not here, maybe. I mean, this is the new. Yeah, he's saying I, the new, is, is not the one that's doing the sin, but the sin that dwells in the old. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make if sense. If the sin dwells in the old, then the I should not, then the sin should not be. Okay, think I about is it. the new. Okay. Then the sin should be related to the old man, which is white. Right. Well, one thing he is doing. <laughs> Whether Connie's right or I'm right, one thing he is doing is he making you see the distinction he's making. He's making a distinction, but between two things going on within us, and that's going to lead to this principle that I'm going to tell you about when I kind of get through some of the passage. No matter what color it is, yeah, exactly. The colors aren't in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, Ray's colored Bible. (laughs) It's not a red letter edition. Okay. So we've been seeing throughout different words that Paul has used to describe this sinful nature. And he's using a new one here, a phrase, beginning in verse 17. It's going to occur again in verse 18, and it's going to occur in verse 20. But in chapter 6, verse 6, he's already used two words. The adjective old and the word man. He uses anthropos there. The old man. And that he, I think, is identifying this old man that still resides in this new, converted, you might say, regenerated, saved, new person. So there's an old aspect, and it seems the best description that I think describes it is an old nature or sinful nature. He uses old man to describe that. Same verse, he calls it a body of sin. We still have a sinful body that is inclined to sin. We saw in verse 14, he uses a word relating to flesh, but it's more adjectival, sarkinas. So verse 14, fleshly or inclined towards just fleshly issues rather than eternal spiritual things. 
And now he's talking about indwelling sin in verse 17. Indwelling sin that indwells me. <laughs> and we're going to see it again in verse 18 and then in verse 20. And I use the image just to kind of contrast. You know, underneath all of that, there's a real person. And sometimes when we live in the old nature, people just see the, the crud. They don't see the inward converted Reality, if you will, using that imagery there. I also mentioned last time that that old nature, we're inclined because we're used to it. We're familiar with it. Walking in the Spirit is foreign to us, especially as a new believer. We have to learn that. And even old believers, we tend to go to our security blanket where we tend to are more comfortable just living the way I used to live before I was converted, before I met the Lord, so the little cartoon, uh, Linus and Lucy there, security. Hmm. If you only knew how stupid you looked standing there holding that blanket, and she's kind of frustrated with him, but I suppose you don't care how stupid you look as long as you're secure. And he responds, that's right, I'm secure in my stupidity. And I think that's kind of a, a good description. We are secure in the old nature, no matter how stupid it might appear to God and spiritually and even to other believers. That's our tendency. We like to go back to that security blanket. So that brings us to the principle that we saw last time, but now I want to state it more clearly. Sanctification involves this internal warfare, and it doesn't go away. It can diminish, and we can develop new patterns where the old nature diminishes, but it's a battle until we go to the grave, until we re- we're removed from it. So the Christian life continues to be a struggle. These things are part of us and are not immediately removed. In fact, that's the glory of resurrection is when we are removed from those sinful tendencies and the inclination that still dwells in us. So sanctification and or the Christian life is a continuous battle until we go to be with the Lord. We need to keep that in mind. Sometimes we try to give the impression to others, oh, I've arrived, you know, I, you know, I don't battle sin anymore. Well, Paul, it almost seems, I gave, in fact, I gave you kind of a, a little history of his development in terms of age, and he seems to be And I think the biblical pattern is we become more and more sensitive to what really is sin the more we know the law. The more we know Scripture, it should sensitize us. We realize, as Paul says towards the end of his life, he's the chief of sinners. Um, Early on, you had said, chapter 7, one of the things some people say it's before Paul was a believer. Yes. And all of this is contradicting that. Paul, before as a believer, wouldn't have this trouble. He'd only be have sinful nature. Right. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't say that. That was what the passage was saying. I gave that as a view. Uh, okay. Probably That's the right, man. Yeah, all yeah. yeah, yeah. No uh, probably the ma- majority of commentators and believers probably take that view because they have a hard time. They have this idea. Well, Paul arrived. I mean, how can you imagine Paul? And Paul is saying, "No, this is my experience as well." And it's our experience. That's why I make the emphasis there. Yeah, very definitely. They interpret or the commentators' experience as well. So why wouldn't they assume that it was all post-believer? Well, remember our tendency. Our tendency as unbelievers, part of the flesh. That's part of the old nature. We still have a tendency. Verse 18, where he began in chapter 1, to suppress the truth. That's part of the old nature. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that Paul, who he was and how great his ministry was, he had to be under extreme spiritual attack. This chapter would have to be very, very real because the enemy knows us so well. Right. And he attacks us and he comes at us in all our vulnerabilities. The, the enemy must have been very strong against him. This would be a very real chapter to him, I would think. Oh, yeah. And I'm surprised the commentaries would not have taken that into effect, that that's the whole reason he talked about the spiritual warfare. Look at what he wrote in Ephesians 6. I mean, it's, yes. you know, 
you're you're fighting spiritual battles. This man had to have been fighting spiritual battles every day. Right. But do they reside in the nature? The sin, the sin is in us. Evil is within us. Yeah, and I think it's that's I think. I think that's the distinction that Paul is making. That's why I'm kind of making these contrasts with the I and the me with the coloring here. To understand the passage better. He refers to it in verse 14 when he says, We are carnal soul under sin. Yeah. Strong statement. We give away our rights in the Garden of Eden to save himself. Right. Yeah. In our flesh. Yeah. In the flesh. Right. Yeah, we looked at verse 14. Um. So that completes verse 17, where we focused last week, 14 through 17, that captivity that is still potential, if you believe the view I'm presenting, if you believe the view of uh, Maddie, although she may have had a conversion over the week, or a last two weeks, no conversions. <laughs> Just had to give her a hard time. May I say as one who's involved in the country, I think we're all addicts. We are. Yep. It, it, it expresses itself exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. Different forms, but yeah. It's, it is. We're all addicts. We're all sinners. Yep. We're addicted to sin. Yep. It's true. Even it's, though it's we exactly. tend to suppress it or try to, at least. We do. Okay. So, verses 18 through 20, and you can see now the alliteration here, the corruption of the sin nature. So, we saw the case of it that he lays out, beginning verse 13. That captivity where we are still inclined to go back to the situation before we were converted. And now he's going to show more of the corruption of it, verses 18 through 20. And then 18 for I, and the I, I'm using blue again. The I, in terms of that converted new aspect of who I am, the new nature, for I know... I'm aware, I know scripture and what scripture describes, I know myself, I know that nothing good dwells in this sinful nature. So there's nothing good that dwells in me. Quite a contrast, I think. Now again, notice, like in verse 17, he's not saying I'm not responsible because he is taking responsibility that nothing good dwells in me. In other words, it's still the same person. There's not two persons here. Don't get that in there as well. One person, two inclinations, or two aspects, or two natures. One that is inclined to go back to the security blanket of the sinful nature. One that is regenerated, and one that has new potential, and new possibilities in terms of what he's going to develop, I think, in chapter 8. But in me, nothing good exists. These are the statements that I said in the beginning that need some to say, how can you say that about a believer? Paul has to be an unbeliever here. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that tendency. Now, he's not saying that it's 100% all the time, but he says that still resides in me, where in reality... And by the way, this is going to lead to supporting that idea or another principle that I'm going to develop as we get further into the passage. In fact, let me lay it out right away and then we'll state it and put it on a slide. The old nature, God is not reforming. God is not going to transform the old nature. What he wants is to let that old nature die. It's been declared dead, and it is the power has been taken out of it, but it still resides, and it's still potential. So we don't try to reform our lives. What we do is try to abandon those old tendencies. And the whole thing of chapter 8 is we're living in the power of a new potential. God works through the new nature. The Holy Spirit works through the new nature. Does that make sense? It's it's possible not to sin now. Yes. Whereas before it's not possible. Right. Before we were believers, yeah, exactly. So I know that, and this is a strong statement, nothing good dwells in that sinful nature. And he's going to specify it. That is my flesh. So he's using another word, 
in this context, he's used it before, but now in this context, another word that he's going to add to that list that I gave you that he describes that old tendency, the old nature. So let's take a look at that word flesh. And then again, my, so he's not relinquishing responsibility. In other words, he is still the one. I think I started to say there's not two people inside of us, but there are two inclinations or two natures, I guess is the best word to use here, and tendencies in terms of who we are. And there's a battle. There's a struggle. And it's a lifelong struggle. And as we grow in Christ... One of the aspects or natures increases if we're on a godly path and the other one diminishes, but it never goes away. Okay? So that is in my flesh, and I make it pink there, my flesh, that aspect of my sinful aspect. Do you see pink up there? Well, it looks a little white, but it, it's, it's actually... I, let's argue about what shade of pink that's. Yeah, yeah. Let's argue about everything. Very light, light pink. I'll have to use a darker pink next time. And we're going to contrast that later on because it says, "For the willing is present in the blue me, or the new me." Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let's take a look at this word, sarks. Now, here is the word, the noun. Use the adjective before in verse 14, was it? Fleshly. Now he's using the noun. Now, it's a very common word in the New Testament, occurring about 145 times. If you do a word study, I'm going to give you the results of my word study. If you categorize all the way that the word is used, you can find four different usages of it. And one of the ones that stands out at the beginning is Jesus is described as coming in the flesh, basically. Verse 14. In fact, we need to look these up. Somebody look up 114. And also 1 John 4, 2. Who wants to get the first one? Connie wants to do the 1 John one. We're going to see a second usage of the word flesh, or sarks is the Greek word. Who wants to do 1 Corinthians you got it, Dwayne? Galatians 2.20. You got it, Terry? And who wants to do Acts 2.17? This is a couple of times. It's even used in this broad sense to refer to all of mankind. Somebody want to do that one? Jeremy's got that one. Okay, let's do these, and then we'll look at a fourth one. John 1.14, a very important passage. In fact, a passage dealing with incarnation. What's incarnation? Light pink. Hmm? No. <laughs> Not light pink here. Incarnation is in flesh, basically. Right? Okay. Who's got it? You got it? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Okay. So... It's a description of Jesus Christ in flesh. He came in flesh. In other words, he became flesh. He took on a fleshly body. So what this tells us, flesh in and of itself is what? Not sinful. Not sinful because there's no sin in Christ. But he took on our nature. He took on fleshly. That's what incarnation means. He took on the characteristics that we were created initially in Adam and Eve, but our flesh is corrupted. Jesus was not. So the word became flesh. And in that context, the word John is using to refer to Jesus, and he makes it clear when he gets to verse 14. Okay, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talk about Jesus. First John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Okay. You can tell a false prophet if they deny the incarnation, if they deny the humanity of Jesus Christ in that context. Now, if they deny the deity as well, but in that context, if they deny that Jesus did not come in the flesh, denying the incarnation, denying John 1.14, that's a false prophet. So flesh in and of itself is not sinful. 
and it's important to point that out here. It sometimes is referred in somewhat of a neutral sense, but if it's referring to man, always it's tainted by sin. But uh, look at 1 Corinthians 5, context of that passage. Paul is reprimanding the church at Corinth for tolerating a very immoral situation. There's a situation where there's a man in an incestuous relationship with another, obviously, woman, and the church is tolerating that, and Paul is reprimanding them in the first five verses there. But notice what he says in verse 5. And I think in that context, he is basically using it in the sense of the guy's body or his human existence. Who's got it? Dwayne? Okay. That indicates he's a believer, but he has delivered him to Satan so that Satan will destroy his body, basically, or his flesh. In other words, take his life. So that in the day, what does it say? That you're basically talking about yeah, salvation. All right. So the physical body. It's similarly to the Christian Galatians two twenty. Got that one here. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Okay. The life that I live in the body, sarks in your translation. So he's talking about the Christian. We live right now in this physical body, this flesh. So that's a very accurate translation, but it's a translation of the word sarks. So it can be used in that sense. Now, all of us as, as humans, apart from Christ, because we're fallen, our flesh is tainted with sin, but not, not Jesus Christ. And then uh, kind of an unusual translation referring to all of mankind or all of humanity. Who's got that one? Jeremy. Acts 2.17. Right, and he's quoting this from Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And that's a real good translation. All mankind, the word there is sarks. A pour upon all of... All people that have flesh, or all fleshly people that are human, he's going to pour out, and it is a quote out of Joel, as Jeremy points out, speaking of a future time when God is going to pour out his Spirit. Now, in that context, Peter is applying it to the day of Pentecost. But, all of humanity. In other words, the common characteristic of all of mankind, all of mankind is in the flesh. See how it's used? So you got to look at context always to see how the writer is using it. Now, there's many contexts, and particularly in the book of Romans, where it refers to that sinful aspect of who we are, that physical aspect that is tainted by sin. Bill, do you have a so question? Just for the John is not sinful. Correct. But in verse 18, nothing good is that... That's not referring to Christ. That's referring to Paul and anyone associated with Adam after Adam's sin. I would say that Adam's body was obviously was without sin, and he had flesh. So flesh became corrupted as a result of the first sin. And all of the descendants... In their DNA, you could even say, uh-huh. in our flesh, all of us are tainted by sin. The only exception, that, that's the importance of the virgin birth. The only exception is Jesus Christ. Flesh in itself, by itself, mm. not necessarily oh. sinful. But since all of us are descended of Adam and Adam sinned, all of us have inherited a sinful body or a sinful flesh. And now when we're talking about sanctification, the word is used in some context. And I think in this one, Romans 7 particularly, nothing good dwells in that sinful me, that sinful aspect of who I am. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Nothing good dwells in that. It's tainted by sin. It has no power, no capacity to do anything good. Now, he's using it, I think, in the sense... Because we can do benevolence, even as an unbeliever. The flesh 
can respond in a merciful way and do, quote, good things. But nothing good in terms of spirituality or eternity, anything that is of value, the flesh cannot produce it. Stretching? I love stretching again. But we go back to Paul's leader. It's the beginning of Romans that the Gentile, the God's law, do by nature what is required of God. And so remember that that natural law that God's in all of us. Right. And it may be effaced, but it's not. Maybe a what? It may be effaced in the sinful nature, but it's not erased. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. But let's look at these verses. The unbeliever, this is all he has. And probably a clear passage is Ephesians 2, 3. Who wants to do that one? Then we have several in Romans. And I think predominantly in this portion, he's using the word flesh to refer to the sinful aspect of who we are. And then in a couple of clear passages in Galatians, who wants to do, you want to do the, why don't you to get the Galatians one? And I will primarily just go ahead and read since I've got them opened here and I don't have to look them up. But first of all, well, we should have got Ephesians. You want to do Ephesians? Sure. You got it? Read it loud since you're in the next county over there. Okay. Among them, we too. Louder. <laughs> all right. Among them, we too all corporately live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, or by nature, of wrath to the rest. Three verses, all three of them, beginning in verse 1. We were dead. He's reminding the Ephesians of our past experience as unbelievers. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And in verse 3, as Bill points out there, read the phrase again. Among them, we too all formerly the lusts of our flesh. We all formerly, before we were believers, lived in the lusts of our flesh. Now, that was not erased, according to Romans 7. A transformation has taken place, but we still have the potential to go back to living that way. And in Romans 7, 5, he used the word there, and since it's in this context, for while we were in the flesh, Sarks, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now there he's referring to past tense. He's not talking present tense, like in the passage that we've been looking at. So he's referring to, this is our past, and I think later on here, in this context, he's talking about, even now, we still have the inclination. So verse 18, that uh, I just had on the screen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my sarks. And then 8, 6 through 8, for the mind set on the flesh is death. And remember, he's using throughout pretty consistently death in this broadest sense. He's not talking about ceasing to breathe. Remember, I keep emphasizing that. He's saying if you try to live, and in this case, you're setting your mind on that old thought pattern, those old thinking, that old way of thinking on the flesh, that produces deadness. That produces nothing spiritual. It, it's deadness. Nothing accomplished. But the mindset on the spirit, there's the new alternative. And that's what he's going to develop in chapter 8, this new potential. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Abundant life. Present life. Godly life. And then verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh, there it is again, is hostile toward God. And he's talking clearly in chapter 8. Of the, in fact, all the commentators would say he's, he's a believer at this stage. So the mindset on the flesh is death. Mindset on uh, on God is or spirit is life it, or life and peace. The reason, because the mindset on the flesh, which is potential, is hostile toward God. A believer can be at war with God, basically. For it does not subject itself... The mindset on the flesh does not submit itself to the law of God, for is not even able. He's reiterating what he's developing in chapter 7. That sinful aspect of us is not able, does not have the capability. That's why he says, there's nothing good that dwells in me. And I should read 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. He's talking about a believer here in chapter 8. Galatians. Who wants to do the Galatians? You got it? This is a clear passage. We I think we read this one before. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And they are contrary one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not Okay, that's a summary of chapter 7 and 8, basically. In a very brief little two verses there. Two alternatives, two ways of living, one in the flesh, and that battle that goes on, and the possibility of living a new way. You, you want to skip over to verse 8 as well? Right here. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap and in that passage, he's discussing the the Christian in actually 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Galatians. So, he uses a, a fifth word, sarx, and we're going to see it again in verse 25 later on to refer to that old tendency, the old nature. Maddie. Um, a question on sarx in Romans 8, verse contradicts or uh, verses 7 8. Okay, so um, verse 9. Well, verse 9 says, However, well, I can fix, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset... Yeah, I just read that one, yeah. Peace, yes, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And verse 9 says, However... You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in mm-hmm. And my question is, um, isn't that a definition of a thing that yes. the spirit of God dwells yes. in Yes, yes. And he seems to be drawing a contrast here between someone who's in the flesh, and and then he goes on to say, but you're not in the flesh if the spirit of God dwells uh-huh. So I think we have a problem here. Well, we have... We have yeah, we have a problem that we need to harmonize. In other words, we need to harmonize 6 through 8 with 9. And I think 6 through 8, he is laying out the possibility of this battle of that can be centered in the mind that is hostile to God, but he's, he's reminding them, you're a believer now, and this old life, there's a break. That's chapter 6. There has been a break. But then chapter 7, we have a tendency, because of the security blanket analogy, to go back to what we were before. But in reality, this is who we are now. We are now in the spirit with new potential. Otherwise, why encourage the believer? Because all you'd have to say is, oh, all that is past. Don't worry about it. Don't deal with it. You don't have to worry about it. It's all gone. But the whole point of chapter 7, it's still there. And we need to deal with it by living in the Spirit. So I would harmonize verse 9 and say that this is who you truly and really are. You need to stay in that mode. And with the Galatians passage, well, I don't have it up there anymore. That's the encouragement of the Galatians is don't live in this flesh because it's going to produce all of these things. The flesh produces all of these things. The old nature produces all of these things. But if you are in the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit. And it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The verse right after that kind of harmonizes it. It says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, it's made inoperative. I think a better time going all the way down to chapter 8, verse 23, he talks about nature. Yes. And he says, not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves. Grown. Waiting for the adoption, redemption of our body. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think the whole context works together to give what I'm trying to convey here. He says in another place, uh, don't you know that you are dead and your life is hid with Christ? Yeah. Don't you know you're dead already? Yeah, and he's not saying you're not breathing anymore. I mean, he's saying a break has been made. It's probably the best way I can try to describe it. But we, we go back. Yeah. Well, let's wind this thing down. (laughs) 
We've been seeing an emphasis, this contrast in the passage that I started last time. Regenerated life goes all the way to 521. It's resurrection life. It desires to do good. That's that new nature. That's why I changed the color on it. Verse 15, 16, and we saw it in verse 18 and also in verse 19, verse 21. Hating sin, that's a characteristic of the new nature. The unbeliever does not hate sin. He enjoys it, indulges in it. And so also the old nature, not just the unbeliever, but the new nature hates sin, 15 and 19. We'll see that there. We agree with the law, the new nature, 16 and 22. That's the verse that we just looked at. Verse 18, it has an accurate assessment of who we are and can distinguish between that tendency of the old nature. It can assess it and have an accurate picture. And I think that's what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 7. And he's going to have other accurate assessments in verse 21 and also in verse 23. And next week we'll look further into verse 18. For the willing is present in me, but the doing, he uses the same words here, of good is not. So the battle rages on. Well, we didn't get as far as I thought we would. That's okay. It's always next week. I mentioned there's two principles that I was going to get to. We didn't quite get to the second one. The first one is that there's this sanctification and involves this internal warfare that I think Paul is describing. The second one is that willpower We don't have enough willpower to sanctify. And that's another problem that we fall into. Well, if I just try harder, if I just try harder, get into the Word more, if I just do more things, and Paul is going to describe, in fact, that's why I've started that contrast between the will and the performance. That slide that I showed you a couple of times. We'll look at that some more. So willpower will not sanctify. The law will not sanctify. Your nature cannot sanctify. Willpower, you don't have enough. Willpower is not going to do it. We need chapter 8. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here today, another portion of the Please let it be a last of your feet of life in your path, even though we struggle with understanding these books of grace, where they expound to questions in our hearts. We do have we cannot do it without you, Lord, God. We're grateful that we can fellowship with you. We believe in you. In your Son, Jesus, we're so grateful without you, God, the Holy Spirit. Please be with us to worship you, go here. Take us safely. Amen. Thank you.